Welcome to your new favorite podcast, OMLS, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So without any further ado, let's kick off this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to OMLAS, where we explore the depths of thought-provoking ideas with some of the brightest minds shaping our world. I'm your host, Aramman Varma, and today I'm thrilled to have the distinguished philosopher, Professor Philip Pettit, joining us. He is the LS Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University, where he has taught political theory and philosophy since 2002, and for a period that began in 2012 to 2013, holds a joint position as Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University. His groundbreaking work in political philosophy, ethics, and the nature of the state has sparked profound discussions in academia and beyond. In this discussion, we will delve into his insights on freedom, justice, the role of the state, and much more. Without further ado, let's dive into the captivating world of philosophy. Firstly, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Arman, and thank you for that very flattering introduction. Um, no worries, but to get started then, could you briefly describe your journey and background and how that has led you to where you now are? Oh, gosh. Um, well, <laughs> I'm pretty old, so that's a long story, but let me <laughs> make it short. I, uh, I'm Irish by background, as you probably know, and um, I initially went to a seminary to train to be a Catholic priest where I discovered philosophy. I was deeply excited by it, initially by the work of Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, that existentialist tradition. Right. And then as I developed, I, I graduated in Ireland in my PhD at Queen's University Belfast. And then I've had positions in uh, Dublin, England, Cambridge and um, ANU and, uh, and Princeton. And in that time, I guess my interests have uh, remained broad. I'm interested in all sorts of aspects of philosophy, but I have done a lot of work, in particular in political philosophy, related to what I think of as the older Republican tradition, the tradition that goes back to ancient Rome. Sure. Um, and you have obviously written on various concepts, uh, but you've written on the concepts of freedom as non-domination. Could you elaborate on how this idea shapes your understanding of individual liberty within societies? I think of freedom as non-domination, as, as the sort of freedom that actually was treasured in the long Republican tradition, which, as I say, goes back to Republican Rome, and contrasts with the, I like to call it the neoliberal view of freedom as just simply non-independence. The best way of explaining that maybe to take an example. So elsewhere, I've used the example of the uh, of Nora, the uh, heroine of Ibsen's sure. Sure. Uh, play, and, um, and a relation to Torvald, her husband. And Torvald has all the legal power over over Nora. I mean, he can determine what she wears, where she goes, right. how she uses her money, almost everything. However, he's dotes on her, so he gives her, as it were, carte blanche. She can do what she wishes. He does not interfere with her. And then you take that scenario and then you ask, well, is Nora free? Now, Nora does not suffer interference, and we can even stipulate that it isn't likely that she should come to suffer interference because Torval is so devoted to her. But nonetheless, most people, if you ask them, is Nora free, will say no, because she is subject to the will of um, 
of Torvald. Torvald is a dominus or a master in our life. Now, he's a very kindly master, but he's still master. On the notion of freedom as non-domination, Nora is not free. On the notion of freedom as non-interference, she is free. Non-domination requires something more than non-interference. It requires that no one have a power of interfering in your life, at least within crucial liberties or choices. So that's probably the best way of understanding it. The, the Romans, I use the word domination and non-domination because the Romans used the word dominatio, right. Latin word really we translate as domination, for the relationship between the dominus and, and the subject of the dominus. Sure. And the master enjoyed dominatio or dominations, I say, even if they were very kindly and didn't actually were very gentle, didn't actually interfere at all in the life of the subject. Just being under the power of another, a master in that sense, is being dominated and by this conception is being unfree. Right. And you mentioned republicanism. So what are your opinions on civic republicanism and what were your experiences with the Spanish government under Prime Minister Zapatero? Well, the I've argued and others uh, much more historically informed than I am have argued, like Quentin Skinner, for example, right. that the long tradition of republicanism from um, the Roman period on through the Renaissance, on through the English Revolution in the 17th century, on to the French and the American uh, wars and revolutions in the the 18th century, um, I think it's fair to say that in that way of thinking, they thought of freedom as non-domination. And that that suddenly changed in the early 19th century. We can talk, if you wish, about why I think it changed. But the civic republican tradition, as you describe it, I think well describe it, that tradition is that long tradition of thinking in which Well, there are two ideas that are crucial. One is the idea that freedom does require that people not be dominated by others in a central range of choice, normally called the basic liberties. And it also requires the second idea that government be so organized in relation to people that while it protects them against private domination by means of the law it establishes, it protects them against public domination. It protects them against its being a dominating presence in their life by means of democratic checks, for example, on how it can operate, by means of checks and balances within the organization of government on how it can operate, and by means of contestatory checks, whereby the citizens are allowed to challenge what government does and to protest against it, whether in the courts, the media are indeed on the streets. So that's really the civic republican tradition. We foster the freedom as non-domination of citizens by means of government establishing laws that protect them privately and secure them privately, and by means of a government that, as it were, disciplines itself by being subject to the control of the people, the electoral control, the contestatory control, and the control of the discipline of checks and balances so that that government itself does not have discretionary or arbitrary power of interfering in its citizens' lives. Now, Zapatero and that government is another question, but if you'd like me to go on to that, I certainly can. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, could you just expand on Zapatero? Well, Zapatero, as you may know, he became leader of the Labour Party, the PSOE, in Spain in 2000. Sure. And he decided 
very interesting. I mean, I came to know him slightly, a very impressive man, but he decided he really wanted a philosophy of government. He didn't just want to make up policies if he reached government, as were like, as in a shopping list, you know, looking to cope, cope for this interest group or that interest group. And I believe from his advisors at the time that he read very widely and my book, Republicanism, which was published in English in 1997, had been translated into Spanish. And he discovered this and decided that this was his style of philosophy. So he embraced um, Republicanism, his great catch cry, when he eventually reached government in 2004, was no domination, no domination. And it became a sort of mantra almost of Spanish politics is very interesting and he used it basically as a catch cry around which to make a case for a whole range of policies I think quite impressive policies actually as we look back right in that first period of government 2004 to 2008 in an initial meeting he had invited me to address a large group in Madrid on civic republican philosophy which I did in the course of that I said to him, you've done a great thing in making the broadcaster, the public broadcaster, independent like the BBC. It had not been independent previously. And I said, that is, and he had presented it as a Republican sort of thing to do. But I said, it's very easy to be a philosopher like me, very hard to be a statesperson like you. You're going to right. find it extremely difficult in future, for example, not to complain about the national broadcaster if it's your worst critic. And he responded to that by inviting me, he barely knew me at the time, inviting me to review his government oh. six months before the following election. Brilliant. For how far it had been faithful to the policies of civic republicanism, which I did in 2007. Right. And you obviously mentioned your book, Republicanism. Uh, but on a more general note, how does republicanism differ from other political theories? And more importantly, what are its implications for modern government? Well, take the, the two sort of grand rival ideologies of the current time, you might say, are neoliberalism on the one side and neopopulism on the other. Right. Now, I think of civic republicanism, or as it's often called, neo-republicanism, as being distinct in really striking ways from both. Neoliberalism, like neo-republicanism, takes freedom to be the main value, but it understands freedom as non-interference. And so it basically says, well, we should just simply maximize the number of unimpeded, uninterfered choices available in the world, and it says, look, law always interferes. It coerces people to act in certain ways. So, for example, that means we should minimize the state, night watchman state, and I would say maximize the market, where they argue that in the market, because it's all built around contract, there is still freedom of non-interference. Now, neo-republicanism, by contrast, in making freedom into something that requires security, against the power of others in private life. In doing that, it says freedom depends on being created by law. Law right. creates the freedom of citizens by entrenching them against others in an area where they thereby become pretty well sovereign, as it were. They may opt to for relationships with others in which they cede control of their basic liberties to their loved ones or to their friends or whatever. 
but they are still the ones they give see that control from position of strength. That's a very, very different picture of freedom and of the law in relation to freedom, where neoliberals say the law always takes away freedom. So we should have as little law as possible. Sure. And as much marketing as, as possible. Neo-Republicanists will argue no law is essential. And of course, while markets are clearly, I would say, for the good overall, and I think capitalism we are going to have to live with in one way or another sure. into the future, sure. it still argues that in order for people to enjoy freedom under the law, the market has to be in various ways constrained. For example, employment relations can't just be left up for grabs. There have to be possibilities of unionization. There have to be laws that protect workers in that vulnerable position and so on. So that's the difference from neoliberalism. Very striking, I would say. Right. And in another book that you publish called State, you emphasize the importance of states in addressing global challenges. How do you actually see the role of states evolving in an increasingly interconnected world facing issues such as climate change, as well as technological advancement? I know. Well, that's a very big question indeed. May <laughs> um, I just say before addressing it, I mean that um, the other opponent, so to speak, of neo-republicanism is neo-populism. And where it says basically you put the, the one person in power, the one party in power, claiming to represent the collective people or at least the real people, and you, as it were, almost cede power to them, of course, neo-republicanism argues that government, while it's important in creating law and providing for private non-domination, must not publicly dominate. And so there must be checks and balances of a kind that are really rejected sure. by, um, uh, by, by neo-populists. Now, when it comes to the international world, um, of course, neoliberals and neo-populists take very contrasting approaches, don't they? Yeah. Neoliberals, on the one hand, tend to sort of say, well, look, states should basically stay out of the picture and let the worldwide market, you know, global marketing take over and, in fact, let corporations, you know, multinational corporations really uh, rule the roost because as they compete with one another, freedom as non-interference, at least in theory, is going to be increased to people's part and and everyone can enjoy, as it were, free-for-all internationally. Neopopolists, by contrast, tend to be nationalists, and they insist on the importance of the sovereign in our own lives, which is our own state, and the importance of not expatriating sovereignty, as they often say, not giving too much power to international organizations, to bodies like the EU, or to bodies like the United Nations, or the or for that matter, the, um, you know, the World Health Organization or the, or, or the uh, World Trade Organization. They argue that they should not have power, those organizations. So you have very diametrically opposed views on the global scene. And neo-republicanism, I would say, by, by contrast, certainly as people have been developing it. I mean, I've written a bit on on global justice from the Republican point of view. Others have written, I think, more effectively and incisively than me. For example, uh, Cecile Laborde in Oxford University has done some um, really interesting work with a colleague from Manchester on this front. 
But on this front, what is, I think, worth mentioning, worth emphasizing, is that since we live in a world where there's a global commons and there are global goods and global bads that we can enjoy, you have to have relations among states. States have to establish relations amongst themselves that enable them collectively to deal with the global bads like global warming, for example, climate change and related issues of that kind, uh, but equally enable them each to, as it were, stand tall in relation to one another as states, so that you need organizations in which states, despite their difference in power, their difference in population, their difference in territory, can each argue as equals on certain issues in the name of their citizenries and establish a, an order that will serve their own citizenry quite well, consistently with the citizens of other countries also faring well. Sure, and um, you've explored the emergence of ethical concepts in another one of your books that you've published, uh, The Birth of Ethics. How do these concepts relate to contemporary ethical frameworks, and what can they actually tell us about the nature of morality today? Gosh, you're really pushing me, <laughs> pushing me <laughs> on here. Well, let me, let me connect a little bit. Um, one sort of view in, um, in, in both national politics and international politics, I guess, is that there are natural rights, you know, rights that are dictated by nature, so to speak, that we, um, that are imposed on us from outside. I mean, that might be associated, of course, with the belief in, in a deity who establishes these rights, or more often than not, they're regarded as as were being given by nature. Now, and this may sound unwelcome in a way, I, I want to say that nothing of that normative kind, nothing of that, uh, you know, kind that bears on morality or how we should treat one another is given to us, so to speak, just by nature. Right. I think, however, that we as we human beings, as creatures with the sort of reason and self knowledge and self-control that we have, we can only relate to one another profitably and and enjoyably insofar as we grant one another, this is just in private life, certain rights, and we each know where we stand with the other, we each know, you know, the areas of discretion we can exercise without, um, so to speak, seeking the um, agreement of another. Sure. Um, and we each, from that base of strength, can build relations with the others. Now, that is really crucial, and that does give a notion of rights. We each have to have a sphere of rights in relation to others. But what rights should we enjoy in relation to others? Well, I think we depend on the conventions, the norms, and the laws of our society to establish what those rights are. So, for example, your at the moment in England, I take it. Uh, I live in Australia. I'm currently at the moment in Canada. Sure. In all three of those countries, we do not think that it's part of the rights that each individual should enjoy that they should be able to possess a gun, you yeah. know, that they right. should have access to firearms. Sure. Whereas under American law, it's very close to people come close to having such a right. Now, is it a natural right? Well, clearly there's no nature hasn't spoken about guns we should have. But when it comes to determining whether we should have rights like those or not, 
it depends on what are the best rules we should have that would establish rights. Now, the rules that would establish the right of gun ownership are also rules that would allow for a great deal of public suffering, you know, with gun outrages and massacres and so on. Right. And I think any sensible view of these rules is going to say well, we should construct the rules so as to restrict the right of gun ownership, for example. And, you know, you don't think you're unfree in England because you live under laws that restrict those rights. I don't, when I live in Australia or in Canada, think that. When I live in America, I recognize that the rules do give me that right. I choose not to exercise that right, as a matter of fact. And But I don't think that I move from a world where I'm free to a world where I'm unfree. I think that um, for my I think the better rules are those in the in the regimes where there are no gun rights. But I just use this to illustrate that we create the norms, the expectations, the rights and the duties under which we live in relation to one another, but equally as between states in the relationship between states. And it's very important that we recognize the human origin and basically the human malleability of the rights that we give one another. Sure. And if you, if you build, so to speak, your picture of the rights we should have as individuals against one another, against the state, and the rights that states should have against one another, if we build those rights around a notion that we should promote people's enjoyment of freedom as non-domination, then I think we are led in quite a promising direction. I think it's a political and a moral philosophy in a way, that will give you a fairly intuitive and plausible sense of the rights that people should enjoy and the duties they should have. Yeah, I think that malleability is extremely important uh, and something that is not really overlooked but somewhat ignored um, these days. But could you share your thoughts on the challenges and opportunities presented by corporate influence and nationalism in the context of state governance? Oh, gosh, okay. <laughs> That's, again, these are very big questions, and I'm, I feel cheap in sort of providing such ready and, and glib oh. answers, really. So you must excuse me in that front. Well, corporations are really very interesting. Um, I, this mentioned, this book called The State that I published this year that you kindly mentioned, there is a whole chapter of that book on the state and the economy, and a long section which I talk about the history of corporations, how they developed and so on, and the rights they have come to have. Now, of course, <laughs> the idea of natural rights really is absolutely no uh, plausibility at all in relation to corporations, because it's we human beings who create corporations, and we began creating them, in effect, really, only in the 17th century, only in the 1600s, initially in Holland and, and in England, and we created them insofar as we created what were called joint stock companies. That is to say, groups of people acting for a common purpose, a common commercial purpose, where they put money into the enterprise, but are not allowed to pull the money out just because they need the money. It's given to the enterprise and it's locked in. That's what makes a corporation. Of course, people are prepared to lock in their money insofar as they can sell their share right. in the company. That is to say, the right to claim a share of profits on the basis of 
the share of, of money they've put into the company. That's where corporations began. Now, for 300 years, corporations were really quite severely limited. For example, in England, they could only be established by an act of parliament. And they had to prove that they acting for public good. Now, in the 19th century, with the development of the railways and the development of, of, for example, initially the canals, it became really important, of course, that you could get enough capital to develop these. And with good reason, I mean, I'm not criticizing here, with good reason, countries developed the possibility of more private corporations, corporations that could form just by going, as it were, to to a lawyer's office. You didn't sure. have to go to Parliament. Corporations in which it was absolutely clear that um, if uh, <clears throat> if the corporation went broke, then, um, you know, the um, the individual um, wealth of the investors in the corporation, the shareholders, could right. not be... Um, could not be drawn on to pay the corporation's debts. I mean, those are important developments, and corporations have been really important in developing and maintaining the sort of economic world we have, which has many, many good aspects to it. But along the way, uh, we gave rights to corporations, and the history of how we gave them, because it was often without realizing it, we gave rights to corporations, that made them extraordinarily powerful, and now it seems to me a real danger. They are a boon. We need corporations. But, boy, there's a dangerous aspect to them, too. And that shows up mainly in the fact that they can create shell corporations, you know, that they control, and they can use these to, well, for example, divest profits from one company to another so as to avoid having to pay proper corporate taxes in the country where they mainly operate. They can use them for all sorts of purposes. And they've now become so large and have been allowed to become so large that they can actually, I think, dominate countries. You know, a corporation that says to a government, look, we're pulling out of here unless you reduce the corporate tax rate. That is enormous power over the government, over the state, and of course thereby over the people who live in that state. And we have allowed that power to corporations. The only way of, of course, combating that particular power would be, again, by an international accord about minimum corporation tax rates, which, and more power to him, uh, Joe Biden has been very active in seeking to sponsor and and, uh, and develop. Sure. Uh, and I most certainly agree um, with the potential dangers of having monopolies. But how would you actually go about solving that problem? Would you put a like a cap on the share value of certain companies? How would you go about solving or preventing monopoly power? Well, there, I mean, you know, there's long been a tradition, going back to the Sherman Act in in um, in the United States of um, of acting so as to guard against monopoly power, of ensuring that corporations don't become so big that they dominate. They determine the prices at which they can offer things on the market. There isn't the competition that we keep those prices at what we call competitive level. I think at the moment, however, that that tradition of, you know, breaking up larger corporations has really diminished over the last 20 years in particular. Right. This has allowed, you know, corporations to really be in a position of monopoly providers. Now, 
one of the things that's allowed that is the growth of corporations that actually don't depend on what people pay them, but on what advertisers pay them. And of course, right. I think in the social media platforms and so on. And so the idea that um, we don't want the prices to become too uncompetitive doesn't gain a foothold there. And that's been a problem. It's it's weakened the emphasis on um, on uh, acting against monopolies. At the same time, a greater danger has appeared, which is the fewer of the corporations in any area of industry, or in any country, the lower the wages are going to be. Because the interests of the shareholders in the corporation are always to increase the profits. Sure. And, of course, you can do that by reducing wages and salaries and labor costs. And um, if there are fewer corporations, it's much easier with a nod and a wink of cartel formation, basically, right. to keep them down. And there's empirical evidence on this. So I think it's it's really important that we reactivate that tradition of enforcing the breakup of monopoly or monopoly-like uh, corporate formations. And how far would you go in saying that the system that was sort of in the sense of parliament having to agree to a corporation or for it to be a corporation, would you still adopt that system or how would you adapt that? No, I, I think that would be far too cumbersome. Um, I mean, government nowadays is so complex that no parliament could, for example, even think of giving the okay to the formation of any corporation that chose sure. to establish itself that would just simply swamp the business of Parliament or of the Congress. There can be, of course, regulation at arm's length from Congress or from Parliament, you know, as in agencies that um, oversee the operation of corporations and and uh, can act, for example, to alert Parliament or even to invoke the courts in using existing law to bring action against corporations that are developing monopoly power. That's in principle available, for example, in the United States. But boy, you know, the political influence of corporations has been pushing for a long time, you know, against the power of agencies like that. Right. That's that's really a worry, but it's a sort of worry that arises in different forms in different countries. And this is a case of, I think, courses for courses, you know, that in different countries you need different policies sure. in order to affect the sort of control I think is essential in relation to corporations. Of course. And um, I've read your idea of the state approximating a functional ideal as a precondition for justice. Could you expand on this? Um, and what are some of the key characteristics of this ideal? Well, yes, okay. So um, I think that in many of us have been writing about justice and the requirements of justice on the state and so on, have probably thought too little about the state itself. Because if there's going to be other domestic justice in any country or global justice in the world, or a greater degree of justice, it's got to come about by the agency of states. There's no way that states are going to wither away as Marx one thought they would, or indeed as people more recently have thought they would, say in the 1990s and so on. I think states are with us to stay, and 
without expanding on that, I think most will probably agree. Now, once you think, well, states are with us to stay, it's worth thinking about, well, what are the openings that states give us for achieving justice, for example? And one of the, the two things, in a way, that I argue in that book, I have a treatment about the nature of the state and their grounds for arguing that it has a particular nature and that its role, virtue of that nature, is to establish a system of law for those who count as the citizenry. Of course, a state may not be a just state, but what I argue is that in the nature of the state, uh, it always is going to do better as a state, insofar as, for example, it does have checks and balances within itself, but also insofar as it's capable of acting in a unitary way without rogue elements, for example, a military going rogue, sure, a police force sure. going rogue. That's very important. But at the same time, it's very important just to be an effective functional state that it should also have checks and balances within itself. One thing that may sound very implausible, unless I, I add in the following sort of qualification, <laughs> The regimes, let's call them, that I choose to regard as states proper, deserving of the name of states, are regimes in which there's at least some balance of power between those who are ruled and those who do the ruling. Now, I think, for example, in a state like North Korea, it may well be that there is not that balance of power at all and that it doesn't really deserve to be called a state. I don't think, on the other hand, that the balance of power required for it to deserve to be called a state requires there to be fully democratic power. So, for example, I think China is certainly worthy of being described as a state, though there's no sense really, no significant sense in which it's democratic, obviously. But there is a degree of control, a degree of balance between those who are ruled and those who are ruling. Now, it may not be a balance that we think is just, but at least there's some balance there. Now, if you think about states as requiring just some balance, you know, and that means you can regard as functional states, for example, states that were very unjust indeed, like, for example, Norman, Norman England, you know, the English state in Norman times, the citizenry effectively may have been restricted to just the, the barons, you know, the barons that require King John to sign the Magna Carta. Sure. But it was a functional state. I want to argue that even a state as unfunctional, unjust as that, is still functional. And as a functional state, it's got to keep its citizenry, in this case a very narrow citizenry, the barons, on side, or else they're going to simply reject it. And if it's going to function effectively, establishing a law that enables the citizens even if they're just the barons, <clears throat> to know where they stand vis-a-vis -vis one another and vis-a-vis -vis their rulers, then it has to have, first of all, it's got to have a unitary power of establishing law. The state has to be unified in that way. But that's consistent, or so I argue, with there also being checks and balances within the state, as in the courts being independent, for example, of the administration and the, legisl the legislature. Sure, and um, I don't know whether that answers your or does anything to answer your question. I said there are two things that I want from that book. One is to gain a sense of 
there are things that every state should want in relation to its citizenry, independently even of justice. And that includes a rule of law, I would say, for example. Right. But then the other theme in the book is that it's not the case that the state is as restricted as some theories of justice like to say. For example, neoliberalism, or at least many neoliberals, will argue that the state dare not interfere in the economy or else it will be counterproductive. The economy will not function so well. I just think that's arid nonsense. And right. what I argue in the book, by looking historically at what states have needed, is that the economy depends on the state to establish property, to establish money in a financial system, and I would say to establish a system of corporations, of the rights of corporations. So the idea that the state, by its nature, should stay out of the economy is just, is just boulder dash. Right. Um, and... On a slight sidetrack, are you aware of the new Argentinian president who is going to succeed, um, Fernandez? Yes, I know. I know, I know of the election and I know a little bit about Argentina. I, I've been there a number of times and uh, I was there just uh, two years ago and dealt with the government prior to the government that has just lost power, which yeah. is not a Peronist government. Um, people often say, all governments in Argentina have been Peronist up to now, where that means populist. Right. That government, the one before the one that's just uh, been in power, was not populist in that sense. And many people within that government were very interested in, in their Republican sort of um, policies. And that's why I was invited there. And I, I spent a week in Argentina talking to various people. I do think it's very sad that in Argentina, for example, they threw out checks and balances uh, under Peronist influence. For example, the, the central bank, you know, is really not independent of the of the government. Now, I think it's that's been part of the problem with the inflationary right. issues that Argentina has had to deal with, because governments are always tempted to lower the interest rates and please their electors, sure. and that may actually not be the best thing to do. Now. You know, we all suffer when there are higher interest rates, as there are now, but that really can be an absolutely indispensable sort of way of keeping the economy at a relatively stable level and to facilitate its further uh, flourishing in, 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 in the future. Right. Yeah, I, sorry, yes. So I am aware of this man who's coming to power. It's very hard to know what he's going to do. Partly <laughs> because he's... A, He's a very controversial libertarian, um, but yeah, uh, we're going to have to wait well, and find Well, he's a out. libertarian in some ways, but in other ways he's not. You know, in other ways he sounds a bit like a, a nationalist. I mean, it's really unclear as an individual about where he actually stands, and we sure. just have to see where he leads that government. Sure, and um, on a slightly less academic note, you've clearly written about various topics, but what for you has been your favorite thing to write about? What What's really made you the most passionate? <laughs> well, actually, this, this in a way takes me on to another theme, because while much of my work has been in political philosophy and, and moral philosophy, and we've been talking about those themes, I actually think that our positions in moral and political philosophy and indeed social philosophy more generally really must rest on a view about human nature. And I think um, 
the work that most excites me just at the moment as it happens, well, and it's long been a deep interest, is uh, is work indeed on the nature of human beings. I'm, I'm just actually about to send to a publisher a book which was given as lectures in Oxford in 2019, uh, which I'm going to call When Minds Converse. The subtitle Amazing. is A Social Genealogy of the Human Soul, <laughs> which may attract some birth, <laughs> if not mockery. Um, <laughs> the idea in that book is to argue that as a species, what really distinguishes us from other species, of course, this is not original, is that we are, uh, that we have language. Sure. But it's to explore that dependency and to present human beings as conversive creatures, essentially, who aim at being also conversable. And the way I argue that in the book uh, is really by means of a thought experiment. I set up these creatures, otherwise very like us, except they don't have language, called humanoids. And then I, I look systematically, as I think, <laughs> in a thought experiment as to what effect the advent of language, the discovery or invention of language would have on the humanoids. And I argue over six chapters, that they, as a result of the new incentives and opportunities that language and conversation converse would give them, that they would develop practices and skills that would slowly make them pretty well indiscernible from us, that they would be creatures essentially like us, which is to argue that we human beings really we are, of course, animals like other animals and sure. high intelligence like the other great apes. But the great leap, so to speak, whereby we become so different from even DNA, very close uh, cousins among the great apes, is its language. It's not fire, so to speak, in the old image that's made human beings so different. It's the word. It's, 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 it's language. It's, it's converse. Sure. I mean, that sounds truly fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, that I will make sure to, to get a copy when it gets published. Um, <laughs> that's, that's very nice of you. Uh, but finally, uh, looking to, forward towards the future, uh, what changes or advancements do you hope to see in the realms of political philosophy and the role of the state in the decades to come? Well, within political philosophy, I mean, there are quite a number of people who identify more or less broadly with with the Republican way of thinking. And I think that uh, the, I mean, I'd love to see that develop, of course, and, and be more influential. But the work that I find particularly exciting that lots of people are doing in this area now, they're on areas of policy lawmaking that will be inspired by the ideal of freedom as non-domination. Um, as I say, there's work on global issues of global justice that people have been doing and looking at possibilities of global institution building and so on. I think that's really important. There's a group of people, in fact, there's a forthcoming book I'm a contributor to myself, which involves as many, as many lawyers as it does philosophers or political theorists right. on employment law and on the new measures we should develop. <clears throat> for ensuring both, um, of course, 
high employment, but also ensuring conditions of employment which people are not subject to the domination of those they happen to be employed by. I mean, I could talk about that at length because it's amazing just how many measures have been taken that has made the position of employees worse and worse, you know, ranging from the decline of unions, you know, the introduction of laws that makes unionization striking difficult, the introduction of non-compete clauses in clauses of uh, contracts of employment that mean if you leave a a given company, you can't work in the same industry for a given period of time, the introduction of arbitration clauses in uh, many contracts of employment that mean that employees can't go to the courts and can't have a class action against their employer. They have to go to an arbitration um, group in order to determine any, um, any complaint they have. And of course, that group will block class action. It will have to be limited to the workplace they're actually in. And that weakens the power of it. There are all sorts of ways like that, which you know, have weakened the position of workers in our workplaces. And that's even without looking at the platforms and, you know, the Ubers and Airbnbs of this world, you know, they raise all sorts of interesting problems too. I mean, that's pushing political philosophy by its nature must reach out into political science and into law, for example, you know. And that's that's one development I'd certainly love to see within political philosophy. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Omelas podcast with Professor Philip Pettit. His thought-provoking insights have shed light on the complexities of political theory, ethical considerations, and the pivotal role of the state in our evolving society. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Omelas podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.